Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the From the Vaults Rugby Podcast. My name is Phil McGowan and this World Rugby Museum podcast will explore some of the greatest players and moments in rugby's long history, featuring first-hand witnesses, commentary and interviews with the people who shaped our sports. On this podcast we're talking to the one that got away, rugby league legend Martin Afire about the union career that bookended his playing career the profound influence of rugby league on rugby union in the professional era and his role in the evolution of the song Swing Low Sweet Chariot and what he thinks about it now. Right, Martin, so you were born in Hackney but you went to school in Ipswich. Is that where you started playing rugby? Yes, I um, rugby came into my life quite late. Uh, I was 11 years old, um, just left primary school I was a keen footballer uh, uh, growing up in, um, in Hackney and going to primary school in Islington. There wasn't much uh, rugby about, but my older brother um, managed to uh, learn English at the age of seven and pass his 11 plus, but I couldn't pass my 11 plus. But thankfully, on the sibling rule, I got into a school called Wolverston Hall, which is a big rugby school. And so I was prepared for rugby. And I remember my uh, brother telling me, about this game they used to play called Stonehenge. And so I had prepared myself for that. Uh, I remember in the in the store cupboard at school, at primary school, they used to have a, a deflated American football. I remember picking it up and sort of running around the playground with it. And that was my first ever thought about playing rugby. And yeah, went to Wolverston Hall and uh, talked to it like a, a duck to water, really. Really enjoyed it, loved it. Uh, had a fantastic um, teacher who was our first coach, uh, Mr Thornbury, and probably wasn't the greatest rugby coach in the world, but he could able he was able to connect to children and teach us about praying to the gods of rugby before the game and, uh, yeah, really sort of made it interesting for us. And, yeah, from 11 years old, I was really interested in the sport, but was interested in lots of other sports, really, as well. Played cricket. Uh, fencing was probably the first sport that I took seriously. I do remember at the age of 15 walking in the school grounds uh, of the boarding school thinking to myself, you know, my life's plan was to be the best rugby player that I could be and see where that took me. So we're talking about rugby union here, right? They would have been playing union at, at Wolverston Hall? Yeah, when I say rugby, I, I mean rugby union. Um, yeah, there was. I didn't know what rugby league was really. I think I uh, now and then used to watch... Um, Wide World of Sports, I think it was, and uh, on ITV, and it would be wrestling on that channel 
or on BBC, they used to you know, show some rugby league games on, on a grandstand in the afternoon. I used to think that was some archaic game and I thought to myself I would never be seen playing that game, which is quite funny now looking back. But um, yeah, back in the 70s, uh, being at boarding school, um, used to love watching the rugby special on a, on a Sunday early evening and uh, watching the great Welsh sides of the 70s, Phil Bennett and Gareth Edwards. You know, they were my first rugby heroes. Um, you know, didn't really know much about English rugby then. I was probably just, uh, say, uh, just used to love watching people like Phil Bennett being able to sidestep and, uh, yeah. So you played with a sidestep. Did, did you always play on the wing in those days or did you experiment? Ironically, I never played on the, the wing as a schoolboy. Um, I used to play 12, 13. Um, I remember playing for the uh, the county side, um, Suffolk, and then Eastern Counties as well, and and playing for Ipswich. Yeah, I was uh, always a 12 or 13. Um, really started to develop some speed as a, as a 15, 16-year-old, but still played for Ipswich Colts, Ipswich first 15, while still at school, because I didn't leave school till I was 19. Um, yeah, went back to uh, Ipswich Rugby Club uh, only a few years ago to to do a speech. And ironically, they've got a rugby league jersey up in in a rugby union club in Ipswich because I presented it to them because that's really kind of where my sort of rugby journey really started to get serious and begin. Uh, um, but because of the times that I was born in, I never got a full England jersey. Um, I'm still proud of the fact that I got an England student's um a cap in or two caps, I think, in '87 when I played for England students with Victor Abogo and Chris Sheesby, and in 2009 played at Twickenham in the first Help for Heroes game when the uh, or the 2003 World Cup winning team sort of came back and played against the rest of the world, and so I think I played in um, um, a rugby A game in 2016 uh, that was on uh, BT Sport. Uh, played for England against the rest of the world in that game, so I've had. Uh, a red rose on my chest uh, a couple of times in uh, my career. But uh, yeah, when I tell people, yeah, I, I never had a full uh, rugby union cap for England as I uh, went off to play rugby league at the age of 21. Uh, just um, after not getting selected for the first um, uh, World Cup, I think I played in one of the final trial games. I think uh, London uh, played the North and I was called in as a late replacement, I believe, for... Um, Wasp winger Simon Smith who got injured and I think I scored two tries outside Rory Underwood that day and I think there were four wingers on that pitch that day I think Simon uh, so I took Simon Smith's place I think it was Mark Bailey uh, Har- Harrison I think was the captain and and uh, Rory Underwood and I think yeah I was the only winger that didn't go to the World Cup So this time you're with Rosalind Park you've moved back to London why, why did you choose Rosalind Park? I went to Roslyn Park uh, primarily because um, one of my first idols, a guy called um, Cedric Carr, who was first 15 winger when I was sort of in the first first form. And uh, yeah, he was my idol. I looked up to him and uh, he was at Roslyn Parks and uh, he was one of the reasons why I went down there. And ironically, it turned out that Cedric Carr was um, Tom Van Dale's dad. Not a lot of people know that. But uh, yeah, so he was the, the main reason I went there. I think uh, I broke my jaw, I think, playing for Eastern Counties in my last year of school. 
And uh, I think there was a, a game that was played towards the end of the season. And I think I was trying to get into to the England team to get an England schoolboys cap. Um, so I, I think I, I played a game for Roslyn Park Colts. Uh, things didn't really work out. But um, yeah, so I had a bit of a, an affiliation with Roslyn Park. Um, Andy Ripley he was there and he was um, a little bit of an idol of mine as well. You know, I think more so because he was in Superstars, I think, than, um, than, um, than a rugby player. But yeah, so I had some uh, connections with Roslyn Park and I, I think I secretly thought that it would probably be easier for me to as a nobody just turning up on a doorstep to get into Roslyn Park's first team than it would be to, you know, get into the Wasps or Harley Quinn's uh, first team. So, yeah, so that was my um, my thinking behind, you know, going down to Roslyn Park. And, uh, you know, they they promptly stuck me in the fifth team because <laughs> um, I didn't really know who I was. And I think I scored five or four tries in that game. And, they, and I think... Week by week, they moved me up. I think I, I missed the thirds and, and went straight to the seconds, played a few games in the seconds. And ironically, Cedric Carr got injured and I was I think I was brought into a, uh, a midweek game uh, for my first uh, first team fixture. And that's when I was put on the wing. And yeah, and I never looked back. And I think that was the first time I, I really sort of remember playing on the wing was getting into the Roslyn Park first 15. What years are we talking about here? This is like the mid-80s, 85, 86? Um, I left school in the summer of 85. I had a, that, spent that summer playing cricket down at Essex. I um, was a keen cricketer and even at school. I think I captained my first 11. don't remember ever captaining my first 15. Um, and um, yeah, played one second 11 game for, um, for Essex. Uh, didn't bowl particularly well, didn't get any runs. And so I thought, you know, I'm giving this away. And because I think there was always that desire for me to be a professional sportsman. Obviously, rugby union was amateur, cricket was professional. But yeah, even though I was good at it, I, you know, I, I don't think I loved it as much as playing rugby. You know, there weren't the big crowds. Um, I think I thrived off a big crowd and being able to, to, elicit reactions from them and by scoring tries and running the length of the field. And I probably didn't get the same buzz from playing cricket, even though I enjoyed it and I was good at it. So when I went to um, Roslyn Park and as I say, I, there was a natural progression getting into the first team and um, yeah, doing really well, scoring lots of tries. I remember the first time I ever got to, to play at Twickenham after uh, going to Twickenham quite a lot because back in, in my school days, um, the varsity match was a big thing. And I remember we used to take a, a coach all the way down from Ipswich down to Twickenham uh, to watch the varsity match. And uh, so, you know, I've always had that desire to play at Twickenham. And so I think back then, Roslyn Park used to get to to play at Twickenham when they were playing um, Harlequins. Because I think Harlequins every year got to play either yeah. one or two games at, at, at Twickenham. I remember playing... I think it was in 86 uh, against Harlequins at Twickenham and then obviously playing in the middle, Middlesex Sevens, my first Middlesex Sevens in it in the summer of 86. And, uh, you know, I only played rugby union for, for two seasons at Rosen Park and, you know, before I was away off to play rugby league. So you played Sevens at school. You played in the Hong Kong Sevens in 1987, didn't you, before the Middlesex Sevens for Penguins. Penguins are an invitation team of a, a great heritage, a great team, don't ordinarily get to the semi-finals. How did you get invited to that to join that team? Um, I think I've played for a few uh, invitational teams, 
and um, I'd scored a few tries. I think I'd scored tries wherever I played. And I think it was always like people used to say, you know, we looked up and say, who's this guy? You know, I sort of shot out of nowhere, didn't have really have a pedigree, didn't manage to make it into the England schools team. Say I just rocked up on Roslyn Park's doorstep. And I've always felt, I've always tried to prove myself. And I think that's why I kind of got this burning desire to score a lot of tries. Because I always thought that if I scored lots of tries, you know, people couldn't um, dismiss you. And uh, so I always had that within me and you know I, you know if I think if you look back in the records I'm sure I was the top try score at Roslyn Park for the two seasons that I was there and uh, yeah so this invitation to play for the Penguins just came out came out of the blue really and uh, my mother wasn't too keen on me doing it because she I think it was around the time um, for exams you know around about Easter I think Hong Kong used to be and uh, yeah she wasn't too keen on me doing it we had a bit of an argument uh, about it but I, I you know I knew that it was going to be pivotal for my rugby development I think it was probably the, the the tournament that launched me onto a sort of you know a national stage made um, rugby league scouts <laughs> aware of me and and the game of rugby union because you know after I came back I think uh, we were playing against national teams I remember I think we beat Western Samoa in the semi-final narrowly lost to the All Blacks um, in in the semi-final you know in the Australia Back then, you know, a lot of teams sent national teams there. England obviously didn't give um, that competition that much significance because they only, you know, sent an invitational side out there. There, there was no England national team in the competition. But as I say, getting to the semi-final, doing so well, playing against a guy called Terry Wright, who was the whippet, who was a, a, a current All Black. And I was, you know, literally a, a nobody, scored quite a few tries in the competition. I think I signed my first autograph ever in Hong Kong and then came back uh, to, uh, you know, a lot of people talking about me. Uh, so I got invited to be, you know, the Bar Bars non-cap player. As I say, I think I played for England students. Um, and yeah, the, there was a lot of interest and, you know, that's when the Rugby League scouts uh, came around as well. So I think after the Hong Kong Sevens, it was a very strong New Zealand team that eventually did beat you, in, I think, in the semis. Uh, there's lots of waves being made then and people are starting to talk about uh, this young winger that's coming through the ranks who potentially might play for England one day. The next opportunity was Middlesex Sevens who you played with Andy Ripley in Roslyn Park's second team, I believe. Yes. Um, uh, they had, um, I think, did we have two? I think we may have had two teams in that in that, in that competition. Um, I think I actually had an injury going into that competition and I, and I, I knew it was such a big event that I wanted to to play and I, I strapped my boot up and I, I remember uh, having a quite a bit of a ding-dong with um, Andrew Harriman. Uh, managed, I think I managed to score a, a few tries in that game, but probably wasn't my best performance, but I was really desperate to play in that game and um, and play in that competition. You know, so, I, um, so I did, as I say, I don't think I, I did particularly well, but well enough to... Um, to warrant uh, some more attention from Doug Lawton, and it was he who, uh, you know, convinced me to uh, to switch codes. You know, I was always of the opinion that I wanted to get a cap for England. That's what I wanted to do. And I remember that a guy called Terry Holmes, I think, uh, swapped from uh, codes from from Cardiff and Wales to go and play for Bradford Northern. And I remember seeing the figure that he'd signed for in the papers, something in the region of eighty five thousand, and that did pricked my attention thinking that one day, you know, that could be an option because, you know, Union was amateur. There was no um, even thought on the horizon that rugby union was going to become a professional sport. 
So um, I did that in the back of, have that in the back of my mind. So when I went to meet uh, Doug Lawton, who was the, the current witness coach, you know, um, I thought to myself, I'm not going to say yes, but um, um, I'm going to definitely say no. Uh, but, you know, at least I'd have it, you know, I'd have some figure in my mind, which, you know, after I had an England cap, you know, um, maybe played in the World Cup, that it was something that I could do. But um, as I think the, the injury um, combined with, and not have, playing that well in the Middlesex Sevens combined with the fact that, um, you know, I, I, the future was unclear. You know, Roslyn Park, you know, they weren't making nothing they could do, but they weren't really encouraging me to stay. I was a little bit, you know, on my own. And, um, you know, Doug Lawton, he really showed an interest. And, you know, after me saying no, I didn't want to sign and, and turning his offer flat down, he was persistent and, you know, kept up in the figures. And I just thought, you know, I'd be a fool not not to take this opportunity. Um, as I say, you know, he said to me, you know, you may, you know, you may not play for England. There's no guarantees just because you've had a great, you know, um, time in Hong Kong. You've done these things, you know, there's no one at your door offering you anything or there was nothing that you could do. It was an amateur sport. I had to, to look after myself. And, you know, I, I I was uneducated. I'd spent, you know, my, my whole childhood at, boarding school uh, my parents you know my mum <laughs> couldn't really adv advise me didn't have anything um, you know my dad was in Nigeria so I was re really alone I probably I, I was prime fodder for, for them really and uh, yeah and the current figure when he came back the third time and I just thought this is too good an offer to turn down so yeah yeah I decided to um, to take his offer spent that whole summer just getting fit and the rest they say is history. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Right, I'm going to dry, digress a little bit because there was something else that happened in that Middlesex Sevens tournament that subsequently become uh, of more significance. Um, and I'm going to tell a little bit of my story first just yeah. to, to introduce us to this. So a couple of years ago, I was in the museum and I was cleaning a trophy called the Millennium Trophy, which is the one that England and Ireland contest in the Six Nations every year. Uh, a visitor came in and we had a chat about it and we talked about when it was first played for in 1988, which was the same year that Chris Oti scored three tries for England 
and as legend would have it, Swing Glow Sweet Chariot was sang for the first time at an England match. Um, and he mentioned quite offhand that he remembered singing it for you at the Middlesex Sevens. Um, we said goodbye and that was the end of the conversation. And then it later occurred to me that I knew that you'd play, played at the, the, the Middlesex Sevens and then it occurred to me that you'd played there in 1987 as opposed to 1988 when the Chris Oti match was. So I then went to the BBC and I hunted down through their archives for quite a long time and found the rugby special recording from that match. And clear as day, you can hear in the final, Harlequins versus Rosalind Park second, uh, Swing Low coming down from the stands and Bill McLaren comments on the, the great waves of songs that are coming down. And this, to our knowledge, is the first time that Swing, Swing Low was sung en masse by, from the stands at a sporting event at Twickenham. Um, and I presume that you don't even remember hearing the song because you were so focused on the game. No, I don't re remember hearing the song. Um, I say the whole Chariots of Fire, Swing Low thing, it was um, something that, um, you know, just ha it happened. But I'm only, I only, I'm only hearing about it secondhand, you know, of, obviously watching the, the video, obviously subsequently um, speaking to people like Colin Welland, who uh, who says he was also there on that day and other stories. So it's almost like I'm, I was there, but I was not really aware of what was happening around me because I didn't even know that my nickname was Charrots. People, when I tried to explain them where it came from, I say, I didn't give myself that name. The only reason I even knew about it was because I saw it written down in a paper after I'd signed from, for Rugby League, I think it was a Daily Mirror, and I think I've still got the article to this day. It's me dressed up in a, in a they did a photo shoot with me dressed up in a, a Roman Centurion's outfit, and that was after I'd, I'd um, uh, gone to play Rugby League, but apparently it was with me when I was playing Rugby Union uh, because of my nickname. But as I say, it wasn't a nickname I made up for myself. It was something that was bestowed on me by, by rugby fans. And uh, as I say, not something that I did really embrace really uh, at the beginning but over the years it's just something that has stuck with me and I just remember when I used to do the first question of sports back in the 80s as well and uh, I remember Ian Botham sort of, and I'd never met him before just came up to me and said um, right chariots and I was like okay and that's he was like the first person of note that I'd ever you know used it as reference to me as my nickname I'd only ever say seen it written down in newspaper articles or people you know, singing it in in the stands and say I never, no one ever called me, and he was the first person that I'd ever remember calling me. And I say people have, you know, over the years it has just stuck. And I always say, you know, with your legacies and things, you know, they are bestowed upon you, people or fans, you know, give them to you. You know, the nicknames aren't normally what you make up mm. yourself. I think Floyd Mayweather is probably the only person I know who's probably made up his own nickname and it stuck. But yeah, chariots and the whole chariots of fire thing. I just think it, I don't know even know how it began, you know, obviously because of the, the film, which was quite um, prevalent of the time and it was about running and my name and, and obviously a lot of the tries that I scored throughout my career have always, you know, even the tries I scored at, at Roslyn Park and, and the ones that people talk and remember are always, you know, long, uh, long range tries. And, um, you know, I suppose that's how the name Chariots of Fire stuck. And uh, obviously with England's um, songs, you know, Swing Low, and uh, Jerusalem both having the word chariots in it. And I think there's just been a um, that association. I just think, he, you know, no one really knows how something starts, uh, but, you know, it, it just appeared. So you mentioned earlier that you were injured during the tournament. Um, and I think you eventually went off in the final. 
And since that story was circulated by the BBC earlier in the year, um, other people have contacted me and said that they were there and that there were stretchers at the side of the pitch. Uh, and I don't know if you were taken off on a stretcher or not, but the the, the image of you on a stretcher being stretched off as, as, as though it was a chariot might be one of the things that triggered the chariots. Of, uh, yeah, as I say, I, I, these are things that all just happen around you. It's like... I suppose being in a battle and then someone telling you what happened, you don't know what happened. You just know what's happening in your own little world, even though, you know, you know, someone who was at D-Day, they couldn't tell you the story of D-Day because they can only tell you that they were just getting out of this boat and going into the sand, you know. And all I just remember about that day is that, you know, I just knew it was a, a chance to perform on a big stage uh, because, you know, playing at Rosin Park, you know, I, I hadn't played for England. I, the, the, those opportunities were far and few far and few between for, for for me and so you know I came alive and you know and uh, you know it, it was something that was very, very special obviously I went up off to play rugby league and had you know big days in front of big crowds in rugby league but um, playing rugby union even when I played for the bar bars you know you're playing at the old arms park it was a it was a big crowd but it wasn't you know 60 80 thousand people we played in a big uh, stadium like Twickenham and, and people are swinging you know I could just hear noise I, I don't remember hearing swing low being sung because when you're on the pitch it's just you just more hear the hum and the atmosphere because you're 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 focused on 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 what you're doing and and the occasion and and then the drama you you don't really pick out individual things and it was uh you know in its embryonic stages and people weren't aware of it and uh, you know I've watched um um several you know videos on YouTube about, about Will Carling and Jeremy Guscott and Rob Andrew you know talking about that famous match in 88 and they you know they're just talking about it how it it, it, it you know it started off at this low singing and, and everything so and they weren't even aware you know that it happened in in, in 87 so it, it was at the very beginning now everyone's aware of it and as soon as they hear it you know it's instantly recognizable but, um, Were you familiar with it from because it's it's been sung in rugby clubs since the fifties and sixties? So had you heard it at Rosalind Park or elsewhere before that? I I had no uh, I have no memory or recollection of um, it being sung. I wasn't uh, a, a drinker back in those days. I, I used to remember they you know when we used to go and play games, there were songs being sung, and I remember they used to do the boat race and all sorts of things. But I used to think you know. These are all, all drunk, drunk, silly people, and uh, yeah, I was, I was always an athlete. I saw myself as an athlete. I, 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 I um, liken myself more to, to athletes than I did to rugby players because, um, I saw, as I said, I saw myself as an a- athlete first more than than, than a rugby player. Um, so yeah, that, I don't have any memories really of of you know singing the song. Uh, at at rugby clubs, I know there were hand gestures and and movements and, and and lots of things associated with it. But yeah, and what do you think of it now? Now, presumably, you're now more familiar with its history, and it's you know it's a spiritual song. It means different things to different people, but it's a very personal song to certain people. So yes, when I um, learned about the song, um, the history of the song, and how it was um, a song, you know, sung about death really at funerals. You know, it was it was about um, slaves and disenfranchised um, African Americans who were trying to 
to lift themselves up, I suppose, really, and you know, to, to think that they'll go into a better place and there'll you know, there'll be better days ahead and, and a, a song of aspiration, you know. And you, so you can take positives from anything. You can take positives or negatives from any situation, but I always choose to take the positive from it. And um, you know, whether it whether it's sung, um, you know, and I've heard it sung on many occasions, and I've been in, at Twickenham on many occasions and watched many England games since I've retired. And uh, yeah, you know, the only thing fills me with a, a sense of, um, you know, upliftment. Even now that I know the history of the song and people can talk about, you know, cultural appropriation or whatever, but you know, the whole world is one big mass of cultural appropriation. You know, we we drink tea and it's meant to be English, but it's just, tea is uh, quintessentially English, but it's not, it doesn't come from England, you know, um, fish and chips and, um, you know, curries and pizza and everything you know everything is you know in in far off lands you know people wear silk suits and you know if you can't unpick the cultural fabric of the world it's just impossible and say that's that and that's that we are all like this we are all intertwined even something is perceived and looks like it is something if you pick it apart it is not what it seems and I think that is what people have to understand and just because it is so obvious you know a song um, you can't ban England fans from singing it. You can't, you can't, uh, you you can't rip it from the fabric of English rugby because it just English rugby wouldn't be English rugby. It is what it is. Um, the same way that you cannot um, rip the African American experience away from America. You know, America is what it is. You know, English rugby is what it is. England is what it is. And if you try to do that, you would only um, cause negativity and uh, resentment. And uh, you'd make it divisive. So, you know, you, you have to embrace your history, good and bad. And I think that's what we have to do as, uh, you know, as a nation, as a, as a code of rugby, uh, that being rugby union, or, or you want to look at rugby as a whole, um, you know, as has got a, a checkered history of past. And, you know, I'm part of that checkered history. You know, people always ask me to this day, um, you know, what's your favourite code of rugby? And I say, no, I just love rugby. Rugby is rugby. And, you know, before 1895, rugby was rugby. You know, we've been on this journey and, you know, I say, I'm, I'm part of that. You know, I'm thankful that I got to play the sport of rugby union and rugby league. You know, I'm, I'm part of the history. I played with the likes of Jason Robertson. I played with the current England captain's dad, <laughs> Andy Farrell. You know, I was part of the England team. So that's um, sorry, part of the Wigan team that was the first rugby league team to set foot on Twickenham, you know, so my first game, so my last game at Twickenham was the Middlesex Sevens playing for Roslyn Park. And then my next game at Twickenham was, uh, you know, for, for Wigan when we won the, the Roslyn, sorry, that won the Middlesex Sevens. And, you know, that is history to be, to, to walk out and actually to win and then to play in those games, uh, the game, the Crosscode Challenge games, you know, Wigan versus Bath, um, you know, were fantastic. And then to go and play in the Help for Heroes game in 2009 as well and to be embraced back into the rugby union um, fraternity and to find out that, um, you know, I am part of the, the history of rugby and that I was on the pitch when, you know, uh, Swing Low was first sung. You know, to me, you know, that only fills me with pride. And I, I you know, and I just hope that just able, I'm able to, you know, share that experience and open up you know the 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 black experience. You know to 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 the world and to to English rugby. And there's many um, rugby players who have played on Twickenham have come from different backgrounds. You know, like Alexander Belensky, 
and and Chris Oti. Uh, yeah, you know, I, you know, I think that's great. You mentioned earlier lots of good reasons to become a professional athlete and a rugby league player in 1987. Do you have any regrets? Regrets to do what? Well, for an English rugby fan, the idea of having Rory Underwood on one wing and Martin Fire on the other is quite appealing and that was never a reality. Yeah. Do you regret that? Um, do I have any regrets? No, I don't have any regrets. Um, you know, yes. Would I like to have played for England at Twickenham in front of, um, you know, a massive crowd and have swing low being sung to me? Um, yes, of course. There's no way I wouldn't have wanted that. But am I going to swap that for having a statue outside Wembley or to create the memories that I did create? Then no, I'm not going to. Um, I'm not going to, um, you know, sit here and um, you know be sad for the things I didn't have when I had so much. You know, um, you know, I, I I got to play at Twickenham. You know, even. There's so many people that would have liked to have achieved that. You know, I've got to play the Middlesex Sevens and and win the Middlesex Sevens. Who, whose idea was it to go to the Middlesex Sevens with Wigan? Do you know? Can you remember? I think we were invited. To, right. Because this is after rugby unions become professional and there were bridges built, weren't there? Yeah, there, there, there were bridges days. being built and, um, uh, you know, that the, the history of, of rugby league and, and, and rugby union and how the, the two codes separate. That's a, the whole, whole other story, and I say, which is another part of the history that I'm part of because I, I couldn't come back to, to play rugby union for, for 10 years. And by the time that I did come back, you know, I was too old to get an England cap. But, you know, my teammates, like so Jason Robson, Andy Farrell, uh, Barry, John McMath- Barry John McMather, uh, Henry Paul, um, all went on to get yeah, caps so for England. I was going to come on to that. This is an extraordinary team, that Wigan team from 1996, and it's full of players who went on to either play rugby union or contribute to rugby union in a really significant way, like Andy Farrell, John Edwards, Jason Robinson. What was it about that team, do you think, that was so different? I think I was just fortunate enough to be born when I am. That's why I say it's hard for me to say things like, oh, you know, I wish I was born in another team and I, I sorry, I wish I was born in another time and I could have played rugby union professionally and I wouldn't have had to go north. But then I wouldn't have been part of that special Wigan team, um, you know, uh, to play with the likes of Sean Edwards. Uh, I didn't get to play with Ellery Hanley for Wigan, but played with him for Great Britain. Uh, in a famous test in 88 in Australia when we we beat Australia at the Sydney Football Stadium to play with uh, Andy Farrell or Owen Farrell's dad, as he's he's now called. (laughs) And I always like to to say that to Andy and I have a little joke with Andy Farrell and always say, at least I'm the best rugby player in my house. (laughs) Uh, But that might not be so. My two young sons might go, go on to be better rugby players than me. But yeah, so I'm thankful for all that I've had and I've achieved and the, the players that I've played with, some great players. So, you know, for me to, to lessen that, you know, you know, would be, uh, you know, wouldn't be right. And what was it like to go back to Union with Bedford Blues and then London Watts later? Um, going to play uh, with Bet- Bedford was a culture shock. Obviously, 
being in the Wigan environment, it was ultra professional. And I think that Wigan team and that Wigan organisation, I think has taught the sporting world so much, even our, you know, the, the, the nutrition and, and the, the, the sporting development support we had. Dave Fieber, who was our physio, who went on to become physio at Blackburn Rovers and Manchester United. And Kelvin Giles, uh, who was uh, uh, an athletics uh, coach, uh, the amount of um, you know insight and thought and preparation that went into to do what we did and you know, say you know I just used to go and join an athletics club and 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 and, and train uh, at, at, with Wigan Harriers and you know and this, the the training we did in boxing gyms and and wrestling clubs you know they were the the forebearer for for training camps <laughs> uh, and you know so that that Wigan you know and I, I've got a lot has got to go down to to Morris Lindsay and the work that he did behind the scenes um, you know getting. And it was the investment that he put into into the team, you know, not only the stadium, but, you know, the training facilities and, and the coaches and and, and putting um, um, investment into nutrition and all those things that now we take for granted. You know, so being part of that, that um, um, uh, Wigan team was, was very special. And that is 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 the nucleus of, of what has gone on now, which, you know, training camps and, and what, you know, the England team have, you know, in football and in rugby. Uh, you know, a lot of people came to, to study what Wigan were doing. And that's why I believe that that Wigan team was so special and influenced, you know, all codes of rugby to this day. And Sean Edwards was your captain at Wigan and then, and then your manager or coach at, at Wasps. And was that what he was doing then? He was bringing those professional practices from league into union. Sean Edwards was a very intense figure. And it's funny, our, our relationship uh, over the years and, you know, he's still to this day, uh, he's in France, you know, and he'll still text me and there's a still a strong bond between all of us, you know, the likes of Andy Farrell and Sean Edwards. And I say how I first met Sean um, was uh, and came into, you know, his his, his world was uh, from the first tour that I went on in 1988, uh, Lions tour. And I remember I was rooming with Sean and... Um, uh, it was, he was a funny old soul, and he, I always wanted to, you know, watch TV. And he, he's always wanted to, to to sleep. And I used to come back from our training sessions. I think it was in New Zealand when we were on tour, the first leg of our tour. And he'd always want to uh, go sleep. And I used to race back to get to the back to the to the room we were staying in, and just so I could have the TV on. And uh, he, he just wouldn't, wouldn't want the TV on. I was wondering, why just going, no, I just want to watch TV. And, he, and I remember once I, I got back to the room first and I remember I thought, Sean's not here, I could, I, I could turn the TV on. So I put the TV on, or I attempted to put the TV on, and it turns out he had ripped the plug from the cord so I couldn't watch TV. <laughs> and, it, and so we really didn't really, we were like oil and water, really didn't get on. He was too serious and I was like such a bit of a joker. And, but, you know, because we had no TV, we got to bond on that tour. And I got to understand that the reason why he wanted to sleep during the day is because he trained so hard. He wanted to sleep in between, you know, at lunchtime, in between, you know, the morning session and the afternoon session. And so that was the first thing that I learned. And I thought, well, God, maybe I should be sleeping. So I, I learned a lot from him. And he was having him on the pitch. You could always knew that he was going to go on to become a coach because he was like having a coach on the pitch. And, uh, you know, he was always barrack people and... Um, uh, you know, be on to people. And it was literally like uh, having a coach on the pitch. And I remember, I think it was in 1993 when things weren't going so well for me. I had a fantastic year. I don't know if you know the history of, of what happened to me, but I was signed by Wigan for £440,000, which was an astronomical world record figure at that time. And still to this day, you know, to 
we're not talking about wages. We're just talking about, you know, uh, a transfer fee to, to, to sign me to Wigan. I had a fantastic year in 92, scored 10 tries in one game. You know, won the Lance Todd at Wembley. But 1993 wasn't a great year for me. Jason Robertson was coming into his own and they just signed Vyinga Tugamala. And, you know, there was talk of Wigan were going to get rid of me. And it was Sean that really saved me with a bit of advice, simple bit of advice, you know, which he said to me, Martin, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Which sounds a bit innocuous, but it just made me think because I was always trying to do different things, you know, you know, you know, there was a thing called creatine at the time, which was new, which was taken to to to, to aid our, um, you know, with nutrition and supplements to aid our development. And I was getting a little bit bigger. And I, so I just whacked that away and just went back to what I was doing best. And he just said to me, when you kept, come to games, just run hard. And just those simple things, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it and run hard. And that's what led to me scoring that try at Wembley in 94. Because if, if anyone knows about my career or knows me as a rugby player, uh, playing rugby league, I didn't do those kind of runs. Those are the runs that Jason Robinson did. And if you see that try, which you can see on YouTube, I got the, the ball underneath my own sticks <laughs> in the middle of the park. And that's not something that I did. But, you know, Sean, I just used to think I just run hard, you know, and I, I, I broke the line and, um, you know, scored that try and it's going to be my legacy, you know, Union or whatever. Uh, you know, that's going to probably be my legacy. You know, obviously there's a statue of me in, in the celebration for that try. And I've got to thank Sean Edwards for that. And, um, you know, and as a player, that's what he gave me the confidence to go on and do that. And, it, you know, it turns out that Vigan Tungamala, who was a winger, he was the precursor to um, to um, uh, Joe Delobu. And, you know, you, we, we've seen the, stuff, the things that uh, Jason Robertson did, you know, in, in Rugby Union as well, you know, and people don't realise that Jason Robertson didn't play in that, that 94 Challenge Cup final because, um, you know, because I came back to prominence and then Vyinga played as well. But, um, uh, yeah, it's just the advice. And you always knew he was going to become a, a, a great coach, Sean. And, and you know, he, he's proven that in spades. And when he um, was uh, coaching at, at WAS, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have uh, the greatest experience uh, playing for Bedford in in 97 just because I was doing too much <laughs> I'd signed for a rugby union club and a rugby league club at the same time it was just money was coming into sport uh, I was trying to obviously um, you know make enough for my retirement and you know I was in demand at that time after having scored five tries I think in the in the Bath Wigan or six tries I think in the in the Bath Wigan rugby uh, rugby league game at, at Main Road so I was coming into a bit of prominence after scoring that try as well so I was making probably bad decisions so and playing at uh, Bedford it, it was half a, a professional club and half an amateur club at the same time I think we had seven professional players who used to train all day and then the amateur squad used to come in and we used to train with them at night not the best um, situation to be in so I only had a year there but when Sean asked me to go back and have my swan song at Boss you know it was I enjoyed it I only played half a season but even to this day you know it's half a season I really enjoyed um, you know scored quite a few tries um, in at that time and uh, yeah um, enjoyed it so I started off in rugby union and finished in rugby union yeah right lastly I'm going to come back to the song Swing Low yeah what needs to be done about this I don't think anything needs to be done about the song. Sorry. I don't think anything needs to be done about uh, the uh, the singing of the, the song Swing Low. I just think we just need to 
talk and educate ourselves. You know, the England fans are going to do what the England fans are going to do. And I, for one, you know, if they're going to sing the song after one, we'll be singing the song with them. I know that um, uh, there are players who, who feel differently. You're not going to get one topic and the whole of the country or the whole of the rugby union family are going to have the, be of the same opinion. And as I say, these things, um, you know, I didn't give my name, myself the name Chariots. Um, uh, we didn't prescribe the England fans to sing this song, so you can't prescribe them to not sing that song. It's going to happen, and you've just got to let things happen organically. We must tell these stories. We must talk about the uncomfortable things of our past, like where the song came from. It came from, you know, slaves um, singing about death and a brighter uh, future. Uh, in death, in heaven. Um, we must talk about, you know, the uncomfortable truths of what happened in 1895, which led to the split of the coast. We must talk about all the uncomfortable things in our past and then go on with love in our hearts. And that's all I can say, really. And is there a broader context? Are there other issues that rugby should be doing more to address that's connected to this? There are many issues that rugby needs to address and we all know what they are. Um, there are many... Um, black players who have played for England over the years and have played the sport at club and county level. Uh, I believe there's only Magli Alfonsi who is part of the, um, you know, the RFU um, committee. You know, things like that needs to, to change. There needs to be, in rooms of meritocracy, they must show society in its fullest and richest. And those are the things that I, um, I think are more important to discuss than whether we sing a song or not. Been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Martin. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to From the Vaults. If you're not already, please follow us on at W Rugby Museum at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Sign up to our blog, also called From the Vaults on WordPress. And more importantly, come down and visit the World Rugby Museum here at Swickenham Stadium. Please subscribe to From the Vaults for regular content like this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.